In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, as the kids are heading out to Children's Church, that was maybe a reminder for the little one in the front row. And with exuberance, he's gone. Exodus chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 14. Uh, Since getting back into the book of Exodus after Christmas, uh, we've introduced the final plague, the final plague to Egypt, that God himself was going to go through the land and kill the firstborn of every household, of their children, of their male children, and of their livestock. A huge threat. But Israel would be exempt from this plague if, if they would trust God at his word and obey his command. I'd say his command is simple. It's actually a little complicated. They had to take a year-old lamb and take it into their home, one that was spotless, no blemishes, no diseases, no broken bones, and have it in their home for a few days. And then at the appropriate time, at twilight, the scripture records, they were to slaughter that lamb, paint some of the blood on the doorway, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house. There would be no death of the firstborn. In addition, that same evening, they were to eat a specifically prepared meal. They were to take that lamb that they had slaughtered for the blood and roast the meat. And serve it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Not typically what one would go to a restaurant and order. We usually go for the fancier cuts, the fancier cooked meats, the more flavorful vegetables. Let's be honest, we're going for the baked potato, not the vegetables anyway. And and we would go for good tasting bread. Unleavened bread does not taste good. It never has. This wasn't about being a nice, fancy meal. This was about being a quick meal. As we continue in chapter 12, we see that the Passover feast that we looked at last week rolls straight into a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So the two are separate, but they are definitely connected. In fact, they're so connected that there are times in Scripture that you will, uh, that you will read people talking about the, the Passover feast, referring to the whole week. Uh, so they do get, the terms do get used interchangeably, the Passover and uh, the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're getting into today. We looked at the Passover last week. Today is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as dry and boring as that sounds, I think we'll find that the scripture applies to us regardless of how distant and remote it might seem on the surface. So follow along with me if you would. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. 
No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Let's pray. Father, you made clear in the New Testament that all Scripture is breathed out by you, that all Scripture is profitable for us. So, Father, even though this command is about a feast to a people that we are not, we are not Israel, in a time far removed from today, Lord, there are principles here for us. Help us to see it. Help us to take them to heart, not just to to know what your word has to say, but to live it. Father, give us that type of reception to your word this morning. Help us to stop resisting. Help us to surrender to your word. So Father, guide my thoughts and my words. Help us to hear from you through your word with the power of your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. A church historian named Claire Davis is quoted as saying, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. He says, I know I've forgotten this before. In other words, as we follow Christ, we need to keep learning the same lessons over and over and over again. Why? Because we tend to stop remembering. We tend to forget. We must intentionally be reminded lest we go on and forget. It's why as a nation we have Memorial Day, right? We, re, it's, we have a Memorial Day set aside as a nation to remember the cost of freedom. So we remember the lives that were lost so that we might have a free nation. Remembering is an important aspect of being good citizens of a country. Uh, remembering is of far greater importance when it comes to our worship. And that's what we're gonna see as we go through this passage, the importance of remembering. Our big idea this morning is God wants us to remember his saving work. He wants us to remember his saving work. We're gonna see it pictured for us in the actual events of of the nation of Israel, uh, but the principles are for us as well. First of all, we see a sanctified feast. And I'm gonna use that word sanctified several times this morning. Remember, sanctified simply means set apart. And as we use it in a scriptural sense, set apart for God's purposes, sanctified. We have a sanctified feast. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. Keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. So there's no end point given to this feast. Like I said already, we have a Memorial Day. Other countries do as well. We set aside the last Monday of every May to remember those who died while serving 
the armed force, in the, in the armed forces of our country because we need to remember that freedom is not free, never has been. And if we do not directly remind ourselves of this fact, we will forget. And especially in peacetime, it's really easy to forget. God's command to his people to remember their freedom as well, to not forget how God himself is bringing them out of Egypt. Now, as we're reading this in the context, we haven't actually gotten to the Exodus yet, have we? They're still in Egypt, uh, so the, the past and future kind of get melded together because he does talk about uh, this feast, and actually, if, as we go on and read, we recognize they didn't keep this feast that first time. Um, they were kind of forced into eating unleavened bread for a while as they get into the wilderness because that's all they have. They haven't had time to set up camp and, and, and perhaps bake some more flavorful bread. Um, but this is the command that God is giving them. Israel's freedom from Egypt is not going to be a military victory, even though, as we will see, Pharaoh's army will be completely defeated. Israel's freedom was not a military victory, nor was it due to Moses' great leadership, though Israel does rightly remember Moses as a great leader. As you read through the New Testament, and, uh, and, uh, which is written primarily of Jewish people, as they look back on Moses, they always hold him in high esteem, and rightly so. He was a great leader. Their freedom was not due to Moses being a great leader. Their freedom was due to God and God alone. By the way, your greatest freedom is not a political freedom or a financial freedom or freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Your greatest freedom is a freedom of being released from the slavery of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. Because you could go without all those other freedoms, right? You can go without all those other freedoms. You can be enslaved, imprisoned, in jail because of things that you say, because of, of, of the way you live. But if you have your freedom in Christ, then you are free indeed. Your greatest freedom is being released from the slavery of sin by faith in Jesus Christ, and it is God who does it. God is always the one who frees. In releasing Israel from Egypt, yes, the Israelites had a responsibility to obey God. Remember back, back in chapter three when God is calling Moses to be the leader to go to Pharaoh and Moses doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Moses had to surrender and, and obey God and he does. If the children of Israel had not followed Moses, they wouldn't have experienced their freedom. In other words, there was a responsibility on the part of the people. They had to obey. They had to obey the Passover. They had to obey the command to get up and leave. I mean, God could have uh, rescued them from the plague, but then they still stayed. I mean, the Egyptians weren't going to have any of that. We're going to see they're pushing them out. But they had to obey. They had a responsibility. But God's the one who freed them. We too have a responsibility to believe the gospel. 
Yet it is God who draws us to salvation. He is always the actor when it comes to our salvation. That word draw is the word that John uses in John chapter six, and it's a word that I've used several times, and as I was preparing this message, um, I decided I wanted to use a different word. You'll notice I haven't, but I looked through the thesaurus, as I do often, to find another word that might be a little more clear or, or at least give some variety. But I looked at the definition of the word draw and it made me stop. Here's, here's Webster's dictionary definition of the word draw. To cause to follow by applying a steady force. Obviously we're not talking about writing, not that kind of draw. But to draw, to draw something. To cause to follow by applying a steady force. That is what God does. If you are a saved believer, if you, there's no other thing, is there? You can't be an unsaved believer, sorry. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are so because God put pressure on you and caused you to follow him. You may not have felt like it. Okay, you may think, well, that's not how I remember. I remember well, my own personal salvation. I remember hearing the gospel story, feeling convicted of my sin, and I in my mind, chose to pray and receive Jesus as my savior and to follow him. But what scripture tells me is behind the scenes, God was doing all that. He was pushing me. He was drawing me. And for those of you who are extra super nerdy, well, the Bible wasn't written in English. That's true. I looked it up in the Greek. It says the same thing, so... When God draws people to salvation, he's the one doing it. God is the one who accomplished your salvation. You were responsible to respond in faith, obeying, right? You, you took that responsibility, and how does God keep us responsible? How does God hold someone accountable for their part in salvation if he wasn't drawing them? I don't understand how all that works, okay? But I know the Bible preaches it. The Bible teaches that we are responsible. All, man, all mankind is responsible to respond to the gospel, but not all do. And that's a whole different sermon series, so I'll keep moving. God is the one who starts it, and he's the one who will complete it, and that's what we see happening in Egypt to Israel. In our passage, verses 15 and 16, we see these holy assemblies. The Feast of, the, uh, of Unleavened Bread certainly has a food element. First of all, it's called a feast. You can't have a feast without food. And in the name of the feast, we have what kind of food we're eating, unleavened bread. Okay, so there's food, but food isn't the point. Lest we should ever get it mixed up, this whole thing is about worship, not food. Food is important. But this whole festival, this whole feast is about worship. Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. By the way, if you're struggling with the math, it says um, from the evening on the 14th to the 21st, if you have the 14th all the way through the 21st, that's actually eight days, right? But it says the evening of the 14th to the evening of the 21st. So that is actually just seven very full days. So all-encompassing of seven days, they were to eat unleavened bread. Uh, verse 16, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. That means going to church. 
I mean, they didn't have church. It was their tabernacle, but, and they didn't even have that yet. But anyway, it was a, a, a worship service. On the first day, you have a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, and what it means by that is no ordinary work. The things that you would normally do in your everyday work life, you don't do on these days except food prep. Why? Because food was still part of this, this festival. We will look at this in more detail later when we get to it, uh, but that's the distinction between these holy convocations or these holy assemblies and uh, the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, there was not even to be food preparation. It was to be worship and rest alone. That's for later. So notice they didn't just make and eat unleavened bread for the duration of the festival. They had to actually remove all the leaven from the house because dough could become unintentionally leavened if there was some leavening agent in a cupboard, if there was um, some starter somewhere that they had forgotten about, leavening could still get into the dough. So uh, should anyone consume any bread that had been leavened, they would be ostracized or, or, or worse. The wording actually isn't very clear. It says that they would be cut off from Israel the law at this point is not being specific as to what that means other than to give you an idea of it's bad. You don't want this. So though the bread was important, the feast was not the point. The worship was. So there's a worship service on both the first and the last days. So that means that in any given year, depending on how the calendar fell, because remember this starts on the 14th of a month, and you know how the calendars change. The 14th isn't necessarily a Sunday every year. It might be a Monday the next year and so on. What it means is there would, on some calendar years, be three holy days in the feast because you'd have the first, last, and wherever the Sabbath fell. Now, sometimes the Sabbath would fall on the first and last day of first or last day of the festival, and so that would change it as well. Um, but anyway, worship was the point. God wanted his people to remember, remember what they were saved from. Remember the time when we were slaves? Remember our ancestors as they were slaves in Egypt and how they were abused? Remember. Don't forget. The application to us is to remember that we too were enslaved. We were enslaved to sin. Romans chapter 6. Actually, a good chunk of Romans 6 is all about our slavery to sin and our freedom in Christ. I'll just take a couple of verses to, to drive this home. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness." All people 
have been born slaves of sin. Jesus being the only exception. I suppose you could make a case for Adam, but he wasn't really born, he was created. We've all been slaves to sin, and Adam, though he started not as a slave, chose to be one really quick. We are slaves to sin. That means we don't have a choice. Everything that we do in our natural state is sin. We cannot please God. Because even if our action appears right, because our heart is sinful, it is sin. But Jesus set us free. Free from the slavery and bondage of sin. So that now, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can live for him. Do we do it perfectly? No. But we now have the choice. So we've had a sanctified feast, a feast set apart to remember what God has done. In verses 17 and 18, we have the sanctified reason. It's just spelled out for us. We don't have to guess. Verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Do you see the... I mentioned earlier that there's a, a confusion between past tense and present tense. As he's given it, they haven't actually left yet, but he's giving them the command in the past tense. It's okay. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. This feast was to remember in a tangible way the Exodus. To remember by way of taste and touch and smell. Because these are unique foods. These, these, uh, this is not a meal that they would normally prepare. And so having these unique tastes and touches and smells uh, would, uh, of this same unique meal that they would have just once a year, or one week a year, would drive the memory deeper into people. And, th- and think about it. God designed our memory to include all of our senses. When I smell a, a, a wood fire, it reminds me so often of my childhood and the camping trips, the many camping trips, and sometimes that fire was there to keep us warm because we were stubborn, and even though it was cold and raining, we were still gonna have our hot dogs and our s'mores. And sometimes it reminded me of very, very warm and humid nights, like why do we have a fire, but still. Those, those senses help us remember. So unleavened bread is not something people generally eat. Mostly because it doesn't taste nearly as good. It doesn't have the the right texture. It's not something that we would choose. So the distinctiveness of the menu would help lock in these memories. Leaven is a picture of sin. And just as people of Israel need to be reminded of what they were saved from, we too need to be reminded of what we are saved from from. Leavening is a picture of sin. That does not mean that as we eat our yummy leavened bread at lunch that we are sinning. That's not what it means. It's a picture. 
And the, and, and the way it works as a picture is just as a very small amount of yeast is added to the dough and it spreads to the whole loaf, so also does sin. Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Reminding the people of Galatia that just adding, a, accepting a little bit of sin amongst their midst was going to make it spread and become normalized in their congregation. They couldn't do it. You know, the human mind is quite adept at being self-deluded. We believe that we can dabble in sin, that we can compartmentalize it. It's just this part of my life. It's not gonna impact this other part of my life. We think that a little private sin here and there is not going to hurt anything. But it is simply not the case. Again, that's not me saying it. That's from the word of God. Here's James chapter one, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin infiltrates and grows in us. That's why we have to keep fighting sin. We can't just let it sit in us. It will grow. It's the infiltrating and magnifying effect of leaven that makes it a good illustration for sin. God wants us to remember his saving work. Remember. Remember what God saved you from. Don't go back to it. In fact, that was part of the reason for God telling them to remove all the leaven from their house because as they're doing this this first time, where are they? They're in Egypt. If they were to take those starter doughs with them, if they were to take that leavening with them, that would be taking it from Egypt with them into the promised land. And God wanted to demonstrate uh, in, in a, again, a tangible way how they are leaving sin behind. They're leaving slavery behind as they leave Egypt. Remember what you were saved from and don't turn back to it. This is, this is hard, especially for those who get saved as an adult because those established patterns of sin, those habits of sin are hard to break. why we work at it. That's why we remember that we were saved from that sin and its consequences and to be warned not to turn back. Don't give in, not even a little. Clean house so there, that there isn't a chance that it will come, that you'll even come across leaven was, the, was what they were told as a people. We need to clean house. There are things, there are habits, there are items in our house that, uh, that might help us sin, that might tempt us to sin, get rid of them if that's the case. We've got a sanctified feast, a sanctified reason, and a sanctified people, verses 15 and 19 and 20. Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day remove leaven from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And that's repeated in verse 19 and added to it, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. So anyone, it didn't matter if it was uh, the, the 
the Hebrew ethnic people or if it were Egyptian people that have joined them, because remember, many have, many will. Didn't matter who it was, they would be cut off from Israel. The actual extent of these consequences at this point of the law is actually left to the imagination, and sometimes that's better than spelling it out. Does being cut off from Israel simply mean being unable to participate in the rest of the festival? Does it mean permanent removal from Israel? By the way, if it meant permanent removal from the people of Israel, that meant certain death. They were going out into the wilderness under God's protection and to not be with the people of Israel meant they wouldn't survive. Again, at this point in scripture and in the life of Israel, they didn't know. The point had been made though, there was to be no cheating, no cheat meals in this week. A whole week of bland, flat, crunchy bread doesn't really sound appetizing. But the consequences of eating something leavened in this week far outweighed the dissatisfaction of the food for the week. God's command to to his people to purge their houses of leaven was a picture of how diligent we must be to purge our lives of sin. Was cheating, you know, eating that little muffin that tasted so good, was that really, really worthy of such punishment that the offender must be cut off from Israel? Now, in our minds, we'd say, no, that's, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? The answer relates to the way that actions indicate faith. What we do, how we obey God's word, shows how much we really trust him. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's action of eating the forbidden fruit demonstrated that they did not have faith that God's way was good enough. And God's way was actually really generous. Remember? Eat of anything of the fruit of the, of the garden. Eat any of it. Just not this one tree. They failed to trust that God's provision of every tree, save one, was enough. So these warnings of being cut off from the rest of Israel for eating something leavened was to remind them that God had set them apart as a special people, even though they were not a special people. I know that sounds like doublespeak, but if if you understand the Old Testament, you know that what I said is true. God set them apart to be a special people, even though they weren't special. In and of themselves, they were not special. They were not powerful. They were not mighty. They were not many. They did not have great parcels of land. They weren't better by any measure. If it were not for God rescuing them and choosing them, they would still be like the rest of the world. But God did choose them. So now they were special. God saved us to be different from the rest of the world, to be special, to be holy, and we need to remember. We need to remember that God is not satisfied for us to remain leavened, to remain in our sin. He wants us to remember that sin has consequences, even if it's just a little bit of leavening. 
for the Israelite, those consequences, for the, for the festival, the consequences meant being separated from the nation in some way. For us, sin's consequences, as a believer, for us, sin's consequences means separation from God's blessing. He doesn't, he doesn't remove us from his family. Okay, we don't lose our salvation. But we miss out on blessings. When we regard sin in our hearts, God no longer hears our prayers. By the way, when you understand the nature and character of God, his desire for us to pray to him and his desire to answer those prayers, and the fact that he has the power and means and the will to answer those prayers, to be cut off from God's prayers is really huge. And when we keep sin in our lives, we've separated ourselves from God's blessings and from answered prayer. When we sin, we are out of fellowship with God. God wants us to remember. To remember his saving work. To remember what we were saved from. To remember and not turn back to it. To remember that sin has consequences. So my fellow believer in Christ, remember. Make yourself remember. Put effort and energy into remembering. Faithful participation in the church is vital to remembering because then you're surrounded with people who are trying to remember with you. By the way, I said participation, not attendance. Attendance is a good start, but we are to be the body, not just watch the body. Faithful reading of God's word is vital to remembering. We promote every year annual Bible reading plans to get you through the whole Bible in a year, but you don't even have to read that much for this to work. To help you remember, find a little devotional. Uh, we used to have our daily bread, and people would mock it, calling, oh, it's just a daily breadcrumb. But that breadcrumb was more than nothing because it took you into the Word and helped explain some of it to you. If you'd like help finding devotional booklets, come see me. Uh, find another mature believer in the congregation. Talk to someone. There's plenty of resources out there. We probably have some on hand. Put effort into remembering through your participation in church, through your reading of God's word. But whatever you do, remember. Remembering is not just a passive storage of information. Remembering, because we are not computers. <laughs> remembering requires daily, weekly, monthly reminders so that we don't forget. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know that we are weak and that we so easily forget. There's, there's a reason we see throughout Scripture you commanding the people of Israel to have these, uh, these various festivals. Three times a year, in fact, they were to gather in Jerusalem so that they would remember. Lord, as your church, you've given us means to remember as well. 
you commissioned for us the communion table to remind us on a regular basis, again, in a very tangible way, the cost of our salvation through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've given us the ordinance of baptism, that when a believer in Jesus Christ goes into the baptism waters, they are identifying with Jesus Christ, saying, I want to live for Jesus, and so I'm going to act out the crucifixion by going down into the water as Jesus went down into the grave and coming out raised again to new life. You've given us these pictures so that we'll remember. You've given us the the, the organism of truth that we know of as the church that meets every Sunday morning so that we might gather and remember, so we might worship you as the gathering, singing praises to your name, being convicted of sin, hearing from the word of God and responding in faith and repentance. You've given us a weekly reminder to remember. Remember. And yet, Father, so easily we forget. Help us to grow. Help us to be challenged through your word today to put in the effort that it takes to be reminded of our sin, to be reminded of our Savior, and to put into action the things that he demands of us. Thank you that his demands are right and good. Thank you that what he asks of us produces joy in our lives. Thank you that you've not left us alone to do it. So Father, we ask that you would help us to help each other remember. We love you and thank you for the way that you're going to work this passage into our lives this week in Jesus' name. Amen.